are <clears throat> continuing our series uh, called Restoration, uh, Life in the Spirit Amidst Racism. And uh, this is, uh, what I'm really excited about is that this sermon series is not just for Bethany West Seattle, it is all six locations uh, talking about how to navigate uh, racism as we have all experienced or seen uh, or in sh some way, shape, or form, especially, not that it's new, but especially in the last few years. And so uh, this, is the series, this is a series that I'm personally excited about, but uh, again, I'm mostly excited that this is a shared sermon series, as every other sermon series uh, are, but this one particularly our team had created uh, because we thought it was pressing and we thought it was uh, important, an important conversation to have in the church. Uh, now this morning, as we get into our second week, uh, we'll continue and we talk about, we'll talk about what it means to uh, celebrate not only the diversity that God has created, but also acknowledging that even in the spectrum of diversity, uh, there's elements of, of power uh, and privilege in certain majority contexts. Uh, and so as I've been preparing for this sermon, it, I was a little nervous, and I'm still kind of nervous because out of all the other sermons that we will be going over, this one can feel personal to really anybody and everybody. And so as we continue, we'll talk about some frameworks and some even vocabulary, just so we're on the same page with what we're talking about. And so, again, like last week, uh, the key phrase was to just surrender. And this is for myself as well, to just open up our hands, to take a deep breath, and just disarm ourselves, especially in this conversation of race, of, of our faith, of, of God, and how that all relates to one another. And so as we get started, in my own nervousness, uh, I want to read from Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. And the word of the Lord says this, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. God, thank you for your church and even the creation of your church through the eyes of your beauty and diversity that the church can be comprised of different tongues and languages and nations. And, uh, and together we celebrate your name and your name alone. So we, we're thankful for, for that. And God, we thank you for your spirit that is on us, that can continue to cultivate uh, what you have intended for all of humanity. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Some of you may remember the story, but back in uh, May, May 25th to be exact, uh, in the year 2020, there was an incident that happened in Central Park. Uh, there was a, a white woman named Amy 
uh, Cooper, who was uh, walking her dog in this part of Central Park. And in this part of Central Park, there was a gentleman, an African-American gentleman sitting on the bench. His name was Christian Cooper. Uh, Ironically, they had the same last name, but no relation. Uh, And Mr. Christian Cooper was uh, a birder. Now, I I didn't really know uh, what that meant, but someone who just loves to bird watch and to learn about different birds. And so uh, Christian Cooper was sitting on the bench in Central Park just minding his own business and and watching birds. Uh, And Amy Cooper was walking uh, her dog uh, without a leash. And apparently in this part of Central Park, the rule was you got to have a leash And I know that my wife and I are sometimes guilty of this crime as well, uh, letting the good dog go without the leash. And so uh, as uh, Mr. Cooper was sitting and watching birds, uh, he said, hey, will you leash, put your dog on a leash? Uh, And one thing led to another. There was a spat, a confrontation of some sort. Uh, And then Amy Cooper uh, uh, started threatening Christian Cooper, saying that, uh, and this is quotes, saying, I will call the police and tell them that an African-American man is threatening my life. And so, uh, and I think this was wise, Mr. Christian Cooper, as he was sitting down, took out his phone and videotaped, obviously was, was, videoing the incident with his phone, and even in the midst of videoing, she kept her promise, called the police, and more than once, twice, three times, she said to the police, an African-American man is threatening me and my dog. An African-American man is threatening me and my dog. All in the middle of being recorded, uh, she still did that. Now, there was a belief that one would submit uh, that she was conditioned to believe that because of her skin being white and because of his skin being darker, uh, that the authorities would automatically be on her side. And I love the way uh, there was an author, there's an author, her name is Robin DeAngelo, who is the author of a popular book called White Fragility. Uh, She was interviewed regarding this situation, and she says this, Amy Cooper, who upon being requested to follow the rules, which is to leash the dog, erupted in a meltdown that was absurd in its intensity. But she absolutely expected the weight of the institutions to be behind her. When she says, I'm going to call the police and tell them an African-American man is threatening me, she knows what she's doing. She's not describing a person on the telephone to the police. She's letting Christian Cooper know that she's going to get him in trouble. Furthermore, Robin D'Angelo says, it's the weaponization of her feelings. And the weaponization is, I'm going to call the police who could kill you. What happened was she was using her whiteness to her advantage. Now, as we continue in how this relates to Acts chapter 2, let's 
talk about a framework that I want us to all be on the same page with that hopefully will disarm our conversation and we can just be authentic and genuine and honest and gracious and compassionate to one another as we have a a conversation around race. Now, you have to understand this is a very sensitive topic. There's hurt involved. There's trauma involved. There's defensiveness involved. As we talked about last week, there's apathy and frustration involved. And so what I want us to do is all disarm ourselves and just enter into this uncomfortable place and, and see what the Holy Spirit is doing in and through us to live out what the kingdom of God looks like. And so as we continue, let me just talk about a couple words that you'll hear throughout the sermon. And the first word, as we heard, is the word whiteness. And I want to share with what it means and really what it doesn't mean. And it's important for us to be on the same page. Whiteness is a socially constructed concept that elevates the ideas, practices, and perspectives of people with white pigmentation to become a standardized norm. Again, the key words here are it's a socially constructed concept. And in this socially constructed concept, it elevates uh, whiteness and, and white culture as the norm, as normative. And anything outside of that is foreign or uh, or unnatural or abnormal, uh, and I experienced this as an Asian American. Oftentimes, Asians again uh, from the from uh, the the beginning of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. There was a phrase of the forever foreigner, the forever foreigner. So I remember even growing up, uh, my parents and even to myself, people would ask me, "Hey, do you speak English?" And, and, and I would always wonder, like, English is my first language. In fact, I speak English better than I do speak Korean. And so, like, what do you mean, do I speak English? Like, yeah, I actually speak English. And, and sometimes, and I kid you not, that's not enough. And for some reason, raising the voice and talking slower seems to make a difference for some people. Like, do you speak English? Yes, I do speak English. As a matter of fact, I majored in communications, and so, uh, yes. And so, but the idea is, and even to my parents and other Asian immigrants that I know of, uh, the idea is you look different. You're not white. And so there's something abnormal about you. You must not speak the common language of America, of North America. And so do you speak English? Because I would imagine if I was white, and if you are white, no one has really come up to you and questioned, especially in the West, in, in Seattle, if you spoke English. And so it's a socially constructed concept that elevates the ideas of practices uh, of white culture. But here's what it's not. Here's what whiteness, and as we talk about it, here's what it's not. And it's the next slide. It's not people, okay? So anytime you hear me say whiteness, no, and I want to repeat myself over and over. I'm not speaking against white people. It has nothing to do with people necessarily. It's an ideology. What's the ideology? The ideology is that uh, socially constructed idea that white people and white culture in America should be elevated to the standard. It's the ideology that I am talking about when I talk about the word whiteness, not white people. 
And therefore, white people can also be anti-whiteness. There could be, there are, and I know dear friends of mine, many friends of mine who are white, who stand up against this false ideology that is harmful to people of color, different cultures, different languages, different foods, differences in general. So therefore, I'm not talking about white people, because as a matter of fact, white people can be anti-whiteness. The converse side of that is white, non-white people can perpetuate whiteness. And again, on the other side of the Asian American experience, I can attest to that. I would imagine, and I would say that uh, Asian Americans are probably the biggest culprits of this. Uh, we oftentimes fall for this myth of following the American dream, and what it means to follow the American dream is to assimilate to white culture in order to be perceived as normal, as in, in order to uh, know that that or a false notion that that is the way to succeed in life. And so my family and myself included, I know that in the Asian American experience, or in the Asian experience, this is also true, oftentimes perpetuating the myth of whiteness. And hence we have this stereotype called the myth of, uh, or, or the model minority, which is racist in and of itself. That's for a different sermon. Uh, just recently, uh, there was a post of, uh, a, a, a woman, named, a black woman named Candace Owens, and a um, black musician artist named Kanye West. Uh, there was a picture of them both wearing a T-shirt uh, that said "White Lives Matter." Now, fundamentally, especially as believers in Christ, we all believe that everyone is created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. We believe that everybody's life, regardless of your skin color, your race, your ethnicity, matters so much to God, and you are beautifully and wonderfully and fearfully made. But the reason why that stood out to a lot of people, including and especially my uh, black friends, is that the notion of them wearing those shirts, presumably, was not because they wanted to elevate the Imago Dei, but it was actually a backlash against the Black Lives Matter movement or statement. Again, I'm not asking what you feel about those statements at all, but I want you to understand that there is a complexity in that shirt or in that saying that wants to push back on a marginalized group trying to make it known that their lives matter as well. And so, again, what it is not is I'm not talking about white people. In fact, white people can be anti this ideology. Uh, and non-white people can perpetuate this ideology. So, therefore, I'm not talking about people. So, that's whiteness. Second, I want to define for you uh, the, the word privilege. I know that this is a kind of a buzzword that's been going around. And you may have a different definition of it. But here's how I want to frame it and how our MRJR team has defined it uh, to all of our pastors as we talk about uh, this idea of restoration. Privilege is, uh, is a systemic favoring, enriching, valuing, validating, and including of certain social identities over others. Privilege is a systemic favoring of certain social identities over others. And guess what? We all have experienced a sense of privilege, no matter what. I, myself, uh, may not have 
the privileges uh, of being able to live into whiteness, because I'm not a white person, but I also have my own privileges as being a male, as being straight, cis, Christian even, educated, I have my master's of divinity, being, I would say, middle class. These are some of the things that actually give me privileges in the Western world as well. And many of us sitting here, you have your own privileges as well. But here's what I want to also talk about when I mean privilege. Privilege is not, it does not mean that one did not work hard or deserve a favorable outcome. Okay, if you are, if you deem yourself successful and you have nice things and you have a nice position uh, or a, a, a status or whatever it is, it, what I'm saying is I'm not saying you don't deserve that and you didn't work hard and you didn't even, or you didn't struggle. That's not what I'm saying. And it does not mean life was easy and things were simply given to you or just given to me. And it is not reserved for just one people group. Everybody, again, possesses privilege to some degree. And so when we talk about privilege, uh, it's this idea that we, oftentimes, with no fault of our own, have been dealt a hand of cards that seem favorable in the eyes of Western society. Again, that doesn't mean that when you succeed in life, it's because of these privileges, and you automatically have given this with no life struggle, and it was easy, and it was a no-brainer. That's not what I'm saying. I would imagine everyone in this room worked really hard. We've been diligent in many things. But when we combine the idea of whiteness, because that's what we're talking about in the next, for this week and the next few weeks, uh, yes, there's privileges in, every, in many other sects of life that we want to unpack, but this morning, there are privileges in whiteness. And, and I know that's a very, uh, it can be very uh, a jarring word, and, and maybe you've heard this term, white privilege. Again, white privilege is not about white people. It's about the fact that as a white person, you may have had the opportunities given to you because you have looked favorable because our society has elevated whiteness, white pigmentation. Again, if you're sitting here and you identify as being a white person, it doesn't mean you didn't work hard. doesn't mean that you didn't struggle in life. But it does mean that uh, race has most likely never been a barrier to your success. Sure, there's been other barriers, even socioeconomic barriers, family systems barriers, other barriers, even abilities barriers, even gender barriers. But race has probably never been a barrier as you have lived your life and as you have been viewed by others as you pursue your life uh, vocation or whatever it is. Many of us, we have privileges and you have privileges. I'll give you an example of, the, of times where I haven't felt privileged. Uh, as many of you know, during my sabbatical, I, took, I flew to Atlanta and I took, I went on a, um, like a civil rights era pilgrimage through Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, ending in Tennessee. It was a solo drive. And I remember flying into Atlanta. Great, you know, it was diverse, it was a big city, got into a car. And then I started driving into Alabama. 
And I remember calling Maria, my wife, like, okay, here's my plan. I was giving her my plan of what I was going to do. I was literally afraid to stop in rural Alabama and Mississippi. And so when I was in Atlanta, or even in some parts of, uh, of, of Alabama, I went to the grocery store. And I was like, look, I'm going to get all the food. I'm going to get drinks. Uh, because between where I was at and getting to Tennessee, I was going through rural Alabama and rural Mississippi. I said to myself, I do not want to stop for gas. I do not want to stop for food. And I remember telling this to my friends, to my white friends, and, uh, and as I say in the South, God bless her hearts. Uh, they said, what are you talking about? You'll be fine. Just, you know, like you're overreacting. And some parts of that might be true, uh, but it's because my white friends have the privilege that when they drive, no matter where they drive, especially in the rural south, that if they had to pull over for gas, there wouldn't be really a concern, at least a concern for their safety because of their race. Again, race was not the barrier. Uh, but for me, I... Uh, it's something I worried about. And actually, Maria worried that for, for me as well. And, and so I remember even being really scared because I was even calculating the mileage. Okay, this car, it has around 300 miles before it gets empty. But between, uh, uh, where was I, Birmingham and, and uh, Memphis, I had to drive through Mississippi. Okay, that's around 250 miles. So I was like, okay, okay, I crossed my fingers. I should be good. That's an example of the privilege some might feel. It's little. It could even, you could even miss it. I remember, again, a very similar story. When I was with my friend Dan, we were driving to Glacier National Park to go backpacking from Seattle. Again, we stopped for gas, but we were in this really rural part of eastern Washington in Idaho. And I remember going to the gas station, and, and maybe, okay, I'll chalk it up to my own paranoia because of my own experiences. Like, I felt like people and, and the people, the person working behind the desk at the gas station was looking at me. And I didn't really fear for my life. I didn't feel like in physical danger. But I did feel like, okay, like it's obvious I'm not from around here. Okay, like it's obvious they don't see many Asian American people. And so I felt like I was just getting that look of the, again, the constant or the forever foreigner. So I get back in the car with my friend Dan, who, and, who ha happens to be a, a white gentleman. And I remember the first thing out of his mouth, because I remember feeling really uneasy, like, wow, that experience was, was rough. And I remember as soon as we got into the car, he said, man, those people are so nice. And I was just like, oh, man, I had such a different experience. I'm not saying his experience was wrong because uh, he probably had that experience. But for me, and again, I chalk it up to part of my own paranoia because of the experiences that I've had, but I had a very different experience. And I explained to him, man, my experience was so different. And, and it was a really good conversation, but he didn't understand where I was coming from because, again, he has had the privilege of not having to worry about things like that. Now, here's the deal. You can't change who you are and how you were born, nor is anybody, even in this conversation in restoration and, and racial justice, no one is asking you to do that. Because, again, as followers of Jesus, we must believe that God made you, God made us exactly the way God wanted. 
And again, just like in Psalms 139, what our kids will be talking about this morning is that every one of us are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. But the question is, when we acknowledge our privileges, again, I have my own privileges, you have your privileges, but especially when we talk about this idea of power and privilege uh, and status is deemed as uh, or elevated over others, what, I'm not saying be unwhite or, or anything of that sort, because A, that's impossible, but the question is, what do you do with that? What do we do with that? In the places in our lives where we do have authority, where we have a voice, where we have influence, where we are deemed as elevated over others, what do we do, and I'm going to call that privilege, what do we do with that kind of privilege? And Acts chapter 2 gives us such good wisdom and direction. Now, as we talk about Acts, it's the time of Pentecost. Penta means 50. It's 50 days after Passover. Uh, people from all over the known world are going to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And that's, kind of, that's what we read this morning. Now, in verse 5 verse through 7, it says this, Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? <clears throat> I mean, imagine what is happening. There's people from all over the known world gathering for this uh, this festival, this feast, and all of a sudden, the Spirit comes in this place of diversity of different people, of different nations, of different tongues, and all of a sudden, you hear people outside of your own ethnicity speaking your language. That is the power of the Spirit. The Spirit was moving and speaking in and through people to create and break down any divisions and barriers of language in, in giving them a holy tongue so they can communicate with one another. And then in verse 8, and I want, this sounds almost boring and almost like you can just skip right through it, but I, wanna, I want us to read it and I want to unpack this for you just for a second. And in verse 8, talking about how is this possible? They say this. How then is it that each, per, each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They ask one another, what does this mean? You have to understand that they are not just speaking different languages so they can understand each other. These languages come from their own context, of their own backgrounds. Those from, the, from Rome and Asia are oftentimes seen as even enemies. So enemies were coming together. There's parts of this world where there was a hierarchy in socioeconomics. Cretans elevated, Arabs not elevated. 
there's levels of education in philosophy, especially in Cyrene and other parts of Asia Minor. The statement, aren't these Galileans? Galileans were deemed as kind of your typical uh, blue collar in our context or carpenters and middle class, you know, not very educated. Some are, some aren't. Just kind of middle of the road people, uh, kind of middle of the hierarchy in the social chain versus people from Rome who were, on the, who were considered the elites of the day. Cappadocia, Pontus, or Pontus, and Asia all have their own differences. So you have to understand, as all these languages came together in one place, worshiping Jesus, it's not just different languages that came in one place. It was people from all spectrums of the privilege spectrum. Those with lots of power and influence and authority and privilege because society during that day elevated certain groups came to the center. People from uh, the opposite side who were deemed as poor and, and less or zero educated, people that were deemed lower on the social hierarchy came to the middle and they all spoke to one another in each other's languages becoming one. And what they did was, and I don't want us to miss this, and this is the lesson for us, they traded their privilege, they traded their power for intimacy, because power and intimacy cannot coexist in any relationship. Power and intimacy cannot exist in any relationship. So therefore, all of these people from all over the known world gave up relinquished the power that they came with, the authority, the status that they came with for intimacy. To be one with the people of God, with others. And I can imagine that was hard. It wasn't easy. Here's what Dr. Willie Jennings says in his commentary of Acts. He says, the homes of mothers are announced in the mouths of those who were far removed from those mother tongues. This is not generic speech, but the language of intimate spaces where people's inside talk to one another. Furthermore, as he, in his commentary, he talks about this idea of mother tongues. People were coming, not just with their own language, but their own life experiences. They were coming with their homes. They were coming with their culture. They were coming with their family systems. They were coming just with who they were. Everybody was doing that, and they were able to share that with one another. Language is intimate. It's not just how we communicate with one another, though that is also true, but the language that I bring, the language that you bring, comes with a bigger story. And it represents not just you, but your whole family, your culture, really uh, a big part of who you are. And in the story of Acts, when this church came, the first church, through the power of the Spirit, everyone from all walks of life brought it together and became one with no status in sight, with no power or privilege in sight, totally abandoned to have intimacy with one another. And, and, and I love what again what dr willie jennings says he says the miracles are not merely in ears they were in the mouths and in the bodies god like a lead dancer is taking hold of her partners drawing them close and saying step this way 
Now this direction. I love that image, God just leading a dance for us through the Spirit, saying, I know you, you come from different families and different walks of life, but I'm going to have you bring it together. You're going to go here. You're going to go there, and we're going to dance, and we're going to be one. It's such a beautiful image. But the only way that happens is when we all relinquish our own power, our own status, our own privilege, which is exactly what the people of God did in order for them to receive and be in intimacy with one another. Now, I know that much of that sounds theological and that, that, that sounds, uh, you know, cerebral and, you know, academic even, but... What does it look like to live this out in application? I want to offer five things that we can do to relinquish our own power. And to my white siblings, I would encourage you to consider one, if not all of these, as you consider the privilege that you have because of our society who has elevated whiteness. And I ask of you humbly, as a person of color, I ask, almost, uh, I, it's almost nerve-wracking to ask of that, because it almost sounds accusatory, but please, as your friend, as your pastor, that is not what I'm doing. We can let our guards down, and I ask you to just hear and listen. As I do the same, even with my own privileges that I have, I pray for humility in a willing heart, in a willing spirit. And uh, these five things just happened to all start with an L. And so believe me, as a pastor, I try really hard not to alliterate anything. And so, uh, so I apologize for that. But here are your five L's uh, when it comes to um, relinquishing privilege. We talked about this last week. Number one is to lament. And I won't spend too much time on this because we talked about this last week, that we can both hold lament and we can hold hope simultaneously as the people of God. But the idea of lament is to feel lament, to feel sorrow, to feel the despair. And for many of us, if we don't feel that, there is no shame, but wonder what it feels like to enter into the shoes of someone that is suffering. And maybe for you, your starting point is this prayer. And it's in a song that we sang uh, back in the day. But it's asking God to break our hearts with what breaks God's. And I think this is a powerful prayer. And saying, God, in the midst of my own apathy when it comes to this, or my own ignorance, not in a pejorative way, but in a just legitimate, ignorant way, I don't understand what is happening. I don't understand what Prentice is talking about. I don't understand what people are talking about when it comes to my whiteness. God, will you just break my heart for what breaks yours? And I think when we pray that prayer, God will reveal God's brokenness for those that have been marginalized, for those that have been hurt, that have been pushed into a, a hierarchical, hierarchical system to the bottom and for us to lament that. Professor and writer of this book called Prophetic Lament, Soong Cha Ra, he says, lament recognizes the struggles of life and cries out for justice against existing injustices. <clears throat> I love that. Lament recognizes the struggles of life, not just your own struggles, but the struggles of others. And so God, maybe the first step in lamenting is, God, just break my heart. What is happening here? Will you reveal to me the injustices that are happening 
especially the places where I'm blinded because of my own privilege. So a good place to start is lament. After we lament, I, I encourage you to listen. Get to know the stories that are not of your own. That means being in, in, in people groups that are not homogenous, people that may not even speak the same language, but I promise you, just like in Acts 2, God will transcend language and bring about intimacy if you are willing. Daniel Hill, who wrote a book called White White Awake, he was also a speaker of All Bethany uh, Racial Justice event a few years ago. He calls this, and I think he also borrows this as well, he calls it getting proximate to suffering. Getting proximate to suffering. Getting close to those that are suffering and listening to their experience. Not providing answers, not providing solutions, but what does it look like just to listen as we get close to the suffering. Brian Stevenson, who is the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, who wrote a movie called Just Mercy, he says this in one of his speeches, a graduation speech. He says, many of you, and I would say this to myself as well, many of you have been taught your whole lives uh, that there are sections of our community where there is a lot of violence or abuse or despair, and that you should stay away, far away, from those parts as possible. Today, I want to urge you, what Brian Stevenson says, today I want to urge you to do the very opposite. I think you need to get closer to the parts of communities where there is a lot of suffering. And so not only do we ask God to break our hearts so we can lament what is happening in our world, but it's also to move our feet and to listen to those that are suffering to those that have not experienced the privileges that many of us have experienced, and just to listen to what they are experiencing. And this sets a posture of our own humility. So we lament, we listen. Number three, we locate. We locate ourselves. Where are we in this story? Where are we in their story? Where are we in the spectrum of privilege? Have you ever tried to locate yourself? Where are you? What kind of influence do you have? Where have we failed? Where do I need to repent of my own racism? And again, racism isn't, as we talked about last week, isn't just wearing a white hood or burning crosses or or yelling violent slurs and racial slurs. Yes, of course, that is overt racism. But there's racism in in our society that many of us perpetuate without even knowing it. Perpetuating whiteness. Maybe crossing the street because you see someone different from you, though no evidence of violence or or danger. Maybe it's funny, funny jokes. Maybe it's not speaking up against funny racist jokes. Maybe we have uh, benefited from these unfair housing policies. Again, no fault to your own, but you've experienced certain privileges, as I have too. Where are you when it comes to the space of power and privilege? Because once you identify where you are at, what kind of privilege you hold, you can then do something about it. No, I'm not saying let it go. I'm not saying be unwhite if that's part of your privilege. I can't be unmanned for myself. I'm speaking from my own story. But... 
the question is, what do you do with it? And sometimes where you start is confession and repentance. So lament, listen, locate yourself, and then lead, help, at least help lead the way in the space of your own influence. So I want us to make sure there's a clear distinction. It doesn't mean go into the groups that have been marginalized or groups that are not part of who you are and start leading the way. I'm not saying that. I'm saying once you locate where you are in your sphere of influence, in your sphere of power, what does it mean to lead? A few years ago in the news, there was, I won't go over the details, but something happened where it was um, clearly uh, an act of sexism on, on a national scale. And so our Bethany staff uh, the senior pastor at the time, Richard Dahlstrom, called the entire staff to a meeting, an in-person meeting. This was actually prior to COVID. We're in a meeting, and, and Pastor Richard just wanted us to just listen and to just share our hearts and how people have been traumatized or how people have been triggered uh, just so we can pray and lament and listen and locate ourselves in these stories and I thought rightfully and appropriately the men in the group were silent. I was, I was definitely, in my mind, I'm like, you know what? This is not my place to say anything. I just want to listen. And the conversation is around, well, again, men being silent, men needing to say something. I remember under the table getting a text message from a colleague, uh, and she texts me, and she says, aren't you going to say something? And I responded, and I said, I feel like I should keep my mouth shut and just listen. And, and though there's a time and place for that, for sure, she said, you should speak up out against this so other men could hear men speaking against this type of hatred and sexism. And then from her cue, I raised my hand, and yes, I said something, but at that moment, there was a silence that I was embarrassed about, not because she was shaming me, but there's this idea that I forget that in my space, to my own people, men, at the, for this example, I should have said something. If your privilege is of being a man and you see injustices in gender, you should speak up towards other men. If your privilege is being white, you should speak out to your fellow white brethren and sisters. If your privilege is being middle class and educated, uh, one should go to them and say, hey, you are not the elite. We are all created as one, no matter what of our social economics, regardless of what it is, if you are in this place of privilege, in this space of privilege, you should lead the way for your colleagues. So lament, listen, locate yourself, lead. And then finally, and I'll end with this, is let go. When the people of Acts, when they came, they let go of their own languages and spoke the languages of others. They abandoned their wealth, their education, their status, so they can intimately be one with others, worshiping God. It was costly. And I love in the later verses, they say, what is going on here? They must be drunk. It says they must be drunk off of wine, and that's why they're speaking, you know, gibberish. And Peter says, are you kidding me? It's only nine in the morning. 
although no judgment if you, you know, if you take a sip of something at 9 in the morning, because uh, it's, they always say, it's 5 o'clock somewhere. No? Okay. Uh, well, Peter, my wife is like, that's a terrible joke. Keep moving on. He says, There's, it's 9 in the morning. They're not drunk. This is the spirit moving. And what I would say is this. In a world where power and privilege and status and victory and domination and winning and succeeding is everything, the kingdom of God is upside down and it's almost foolish. It's foolish because the spirit is saying, abandon that. And I mean that in a way that creates equity and oneness in our diversity. It doesn't mean quit your job. It doesn't mean give away all your money unless you're convicted of doing that. It doesn't mean not be white, not be Asian. It doesn't mean not be male, not be female. or what. It doesn't mean that necessarily. What it does mean is do not bring that to the table as your center of your identity and using that to dominate other groups of people. Leave that out the door. We live in a world where it says bring that in and win and and be victorious in your vocation and in your sphere of influence or wherever it is. And here, the Spirit is saying leave that at the door. Leave that at the door. It means decentering ourselves, which I think is one of the biggest problems. Decentering ourselves, decentering ourselves, and listening, and locating, and speaking up against those in our sphere of influence. And as I invite the worship team back up, as we enter in this place of reflection, if I invite Taylor up, our worship team. I want us to consider the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Who in Philippians chapter 2 says, the very nature of God, Jesus, he relinquished his power sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. Gave up that privilege, that power to come down on our behalf to love, to heal, to teach, to forgive, to be with us. And not only that, to die on a cross as a criminal. I mean, that is the holiest example. That is the most sacred. That is the best example of what it looks like to abandon your own privilege for the sake of intimacy with others. Not in a power-domineering way, not in a messiah-complex way, or a savior, or a colonial way, but in a way that says, I'm with you. We're one. We're different, and that's beautiful, but yet we're one. And my hope is that this morning, yes, I'm talking about the privilege of whiteness, but maybe there's privileges in your life that we have been blinded by. I know that I have. I know that even as a, as a man, I have my own privileges, and my wife has to graciously correct me on ways that I have been sexist. Just like racism, for me, sexism doesn't mean telling jokes or slurs or whatever it is. It's, it's in this system perpetuating the privilege. 
but maybe you have perpetuated the privilege of whiteness. Again, you don't even have to be white to do this. I fall guilty of this. But what does it mean for us to be and acknowledge that we are created in the image of God? And we've been blessed in our own individual ways. And with that blessing, what will you do with it is the question. Will you serve others? Will you love others? Or will you use it for your own selfish ambition and your own domineering of others? I hope you would choose the former. That as we would listen and lament and unpack, that we would lead the way with our voice and our own sphere of influence. Speak up is a good place to start. Have conversations. Have coffee with those that look differently than you. Go against the grain if that's what it takes. Even if that means relinquishing a little bit of your popularity, of your own likability, of your own status. Maybe it's in your resources. You give to organizations. You give to the church. You give to nonprofits. Whatever it is to help move the voices of the underprivileged and the marginalized. I don't know what it is, but maybe that's a good starting point. God loves you. God loves all of us. May we live in that love and share that with others. Let's pray. God, thank you for this hard word, even jarring words. But God, may we just release and let go of our own defensiveness and lean into the discomfort so we can do a better job of loving and bringing the kingdom of God here on earth, which in many ways it's upside down to the ways of our world where the world says to pursue power and privilege and status and elevation and domineering, may we bring in a different message, being guided and led by the Spirit. May we emulate your work on the cross, how you came down from heaven on our behalf to die on the cross as a criminal, relinquishing your power, your own privilege. And may we use that as an example to let go of the things that we think are important in order to love better, to be more just, to create intimacy with others. Give us that strength by your spirit. In your name we pray, amen and amen.